Well, good morning, Orangewood. Great to see all of you. If you have a Bible, we will be in 2 Corinthians 4, or you can follow along on the screens as I read. Friends, these words are inspired, sufficient, and true, and they are given to us in love. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of the faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also uh, will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Before you take a seat, would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come uh, this morning as your church. We've gathered underneath the authority of your word uh, for you to teach us, for your spirit to lead us, uh, to convict us, to, to, to guide us, to empower us, to fill us with hope this morning of resurrection. We need your help. We need your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Uh, if you are a, a guest with us this morning, I'm really glad you are here. Uh, as we discussed last week in Easter, we need a resurrection perspective to face the doubts of life. And we began a new sermon series today called I Am Thomas. And, and, and sadly, poor Thomas um, ha, has been the, the person cemented in history as the archetype of doubt and questioning. But if we are honest this morning, we recognize the same questions and the same doubts Thomas had, we struggle with as well. And today we begin a sermon series that'll take us through the month of May, um, looking at various doubts and questions you may have, and maybe you're here this morning, uh, the objections that you have to Christianity. Uh, today's question may be the most difficult and maybe the most painful and personal. Why does God allow suffering? Charles Stone put it into words that we may all feel in this room in his own personal story. He said this, as I fumbled with my keys to open the door, I heard the phone ring inside. I finally opened the door, ran into the kitchen, picked up the receiver. I hadn't expected the doctor to call so quickly. I listened as he explained it was a call no parent should ever have to endure. Although he tried to temper the news, I heard little else after he revealed it. As if an invisible hand were squeezing my lungs, I couldn't breathe. My heart throbbed, my face flushed, my hands shook. 
He said they'd call soon to arrange the emergency surgery. My daughter, Tiffany, was oblivious to what awaited her. I rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, as tears streamed down my face. In my mind, I kept thinking, little one-year-old girls aren't supposed to get brain tumors. Little one-year-old girls aren't supposed to get brain tumors. Yet I could not deny my reality. Charles Stone went on to share that Tiffany would have 10 brain surgeries over multiple decades. Tiffany would live, but it does not take away the pain that a parent feels for a child who suffers for multiple decades. We ask this question, God, where are you? Uh, I recently sat down with a friend of mine um, who had shared the painful story of losing his wife at the age of 38. She had been diagnosed with cancer and had gone through various surgeries and procedures and had gone into remission. Uh, A year later, they were taking some blood and in the process of taking blood, it revealed that the cancer had come back, but not only that it had come back, it had spread to the liver. And she died in six months. And now my friend is raising two young kids And we are left to ask, God, where are you? Where are you? This morning, I know you have your own situations and struggles that you've carried with you into this room. For some, it's a diagnosis. Uh, For others, it's the person in your life who was here last year, but is not here this year. Others, it's the pain of betrayal or job loss. We are left to ask, God, God, where are you? Where are you? Why does God allow suffering? Uh, Well, (laughs) this morning, I want you to know from the outset, I'm going to clear this up. I will not solve this question. Just want you to know that. This question we carry with us, but I would like to give some perspective and ultimately some hope in the question. In our passage that I read earlier, the apostle Paul also knows this question. Um, He he writes uh, not about pain and suffering as something out there, but something he intimately is experiencing in his own life. And he wants to help us navigate this question and to gain a proper perspective. First, we learn about the certainty of suffering. Uh, Look at our passage. Paul says this in verse eight. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul says we are afflicted in every way. Uh, Later in our passage, verse 26, he, he says, we are wasting away. Did you know that this morning? You are wasting away. Uh, Paul, Paul says it so matter of factly, he, he doesn't have to convince anyone this morning of this certainty of suffering. Uh, we see this in the, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 43. It, it says, when you pass through the waters, when you go through the fire, we just sang of that in that song. It, it doesn't say if you pass through the raging waters, if you go through the fire, it says what, when, when, when you go through the waters, when you go through the fire, when. When life falls apart, when sickness comes, 
when divorce happens, when upheaval occurs, when there is a certainty to suffering. Paul says, I'm afflicted in every way. We this morning are wasting away. Did you know that? We are wasting away. Uh, I started working out again recently and my whole body is sore. Every time I go, there's a new muscle that I'm finding out exists in my body that seems to be falling apart. We are wasting away. And I know what some of you are thinking, Uh, Tyler, you have no clue, man. You have no clue what soreness is. You're just 40. Wait, wait till you're 50. Wait till you're 70. You have no clue what wasting away is. We are wasting away. Paul can speak so matter of factly about suffering in this passage because it is a universally known reality of life. Look at, look at the old stories people told. Look at their, their journals, their diaries. Look, look what they went through. Suffering is a universally known reality of life. St. Teresa of Avila um, was a Catholic nun. And in 1536, she, she went into a convent to serve in Spain. And very early after coming in to serve at that convent, she came down with a, a very serious illness that took her into a coma. Um, and at one point after she awoke from the coma, she had apparently become paralyzed in her legs and she was paralyzed for three years. Um, that physical suffering led to emotional suffering and spiritual suffering. And she called that season of her life, quote, nearly 20 years on that stormy sea, end quote. And maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe you are going through something in life that feels like you are on that stormy sea. Paul says we first have to name reality. We, yes, we are afflicted in every way. We are wasting away. We are on that stormy sea. There is a certainty to suffering in this life that we are all experiencing now or will experience in the near future. But, but coming to grips with the certainty of suffering creates in us um, a disequilibrium, a, a spiritual disequilibrium. Suffering does that for me, at least. Where are you, God? What, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? This brings us to the second point Paul wants to make this morning. The confusion from suffering. The confusion from our suffering. Uh, Look at our passage, verse 11. This is what Paul says. Uh, For we who are alive, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul tells us the exact opposite of what we would assume, that we think suffering comes into the life of someone who's being really bad. But Paul reminds us this morning, we are given over to suffering for Jesus' sake. What? For Jesus' sake, what does that mean? Uh, Colin Wilson was a British author who talked about his own confusion with suffering. He wrote this in one of his books. Suffering is admittedly one of the central problems of human existence. But this is because we have a suspicion that it is all for nothing. If we had a certainty about about meaning, 
the suffering will be bearable with no certainty of meaning. Even comfort begins to feel futile. This is the sentiment we, we feel that the confusion of suffering. What, what's the point to this? How does this serve a purpose in our life? What's the meaning behind it all? And, and in that moment, Paul says to us, oh, don't worry. It's for Jesus's sake. Okay. Thank, thanks, Paul. That that's helpful. Friends, this promotes confusion. How can a good God allow suffering into our lives? And what can happen is that we begin to allow that confusion uh, to rip away the anchor of stability, which is God is in control. He is good. And we find we begin to ask the questions, God, are, are you even real? If you are, why would you even allow this to happen? What's the meaning behind it all? It seems like there's no point. We can begin to give into the idea that just because I can't think of a good reason for this suffering, then there must not be any good reason for this suffering. We can begin to to fall into that. Uh, The Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga talked actually about this fallacy that we can fall into, which is that we begin to believe that because I can't see a reason for my suffering, then there must not be a reason for it. Um, and uh, he, he speaks to kind of the issue that Colin Wilson had, that if, if because I can't see a reason that everything is futile, there is no meaning. But Planka says, on the other hand, we have to accept the reality of things that though we can't see and understand our world, that is simply part of being a finite human being. We don't have the larger vantage point to see everything in life. A planning gives an example in one of his books, and he's, he says, it's one thing for you to see a St. Bernard, your St. Bernard dog in his pup tent. It's one thing to see the St. Bernard dog. It's an entirely different thing at the same time to see noceums in that same pup tent. Do you know what noceums are? The, the little animal, they're called noceums. Why? Because you can't see them. And Planga says, just because you can't see them, those no CMs, doesn't mean they're not there or that they're any less annoying. Planga says we must apply the same logic to the problem of evil. The confusion from suffering comes when we believe that we have the final vantage point. And this one small issue of no CMs, we understand that we can't see everything. And we can't understand everything. We don't have the final vantage point. Uh, This is the issue that Job had. Uh, Job, if you don't know the story, he he dealt with incredible suffering in his life. He, 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 He is at this place and he's asking God, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And God in that moment doesn't say to Job, hey, listen, listen, I, I, here, I want to I walk you through all the reasons that I've allowed these things into your life. Let me, let me just sit you down and give you the play-by-play of why I've allowed every the, he doesn't do that. He, he says to Job, where were you? Job, where were you when I told the ocean it could only go this far? Uh, Job, Job, where were you when uh, I allow the morning sun to come up? Where, where were you in that moment? And Job, at the end of the book of Job, ends up putting his hands over his mouth as a sign of repentance, as a sign that God, you simply have ways I don't understand. You, you, you simply have ways that I don't know. 
And this is what it means for you to be God. And I'm not. Oh, well, let me give you one more illustration that may get this clear in your life, this vantage point. Um, it's interesting when I look back on my life in 10 year segments, when I look back on my life in 10 year segments. Um, so when I was 25 years old, I look back on my 15 year old self at 25. And I thought this at 25, man, what an idiot. You were so insecure. You thought you knew so much. You were so wrong. At 35 years old, I look back on my 25 year old self and this is what I thought about the 25 year old Tyler at 35, man, what an idiot. You were so insecure. You thought you knew so much. You were so wrong. Now in five years, I'm going to be 45. I know it's hard to believe that, but I will be. And I don't think I'm going to say that then. No, I'm kidding. I'm exactly that's what I'm going to say. Some of you, you can look back on many, many more years than even I can. And you see this in your own life. We, we tend to believe whatever age we currently are, we know a lot, but give yourself 10 years and you may be surprised. Now extrapolate that out to an infinite, eternal, wise, and good creator who knows the end from the beginning. God might just have a better vantage point on life than you. I love the way brother Lawrence put it. And I think he puts it in great perspective. He said this, God is infinitely good and he knows what he is doing. I love that line. Though suffering prompts confusion, we are invited to trust and for our confidence in a God who is infinitely good and who knows what he is doing. This leads us to our third point, the comfort in suffering. Uh, look, at how, look at how Paul speaks to our reality. And hopefully this is as comforting to you as it was to me. Paul tells us this in verse seven, uh, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Uh, Paul tells us we are jars of clay, the, the treasure of God, the, the grace of God, the beauty of God held in jars of clay. This is quite the contrast to illustrate who we are in this verse. This, there's this expensive treasure <laughs> that's being carried around in jars of clay. Uh, in the first century, these, these jars of clay were, were known to be incredibly cheap, uh, incredibly fragile, incredibly breakable. Paul tells us, God knows your frame. God knows your frame this morning. He knows that suffering is hard to understand, but God doesn't forsake us in our questions and doubts. He doesn't shy away from us when we question him. Rather, he comforts us. He, he, he holds us. 
We see this actually earlier in 2 Corinthians. This is how Paul describes this God. He says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul tells us God knows our frame and he comforts us. He is not a God of sometimes comfort, but it says here he is the God of all comfort. No matter what you're going through this morning, he will comfort you. He knows your frame. You are a jar of clay. He sees the questions you are carrying. He sees your doubts. He sees your sadness. And he opens his arms as wide as he possibly can to receive you and comfort you this morning. God doesn't get scared off by your questions. He doesn't run away from you and your doubts. Rather, he knows your frame and he comforts you. He will hold you in your fears. He will comfort you in your tears and he won't let go. Even though we are fragile, he will be our God of all comfort. God knows your frame. God knows your frame this morning. Uh, but second, we need to see God experienced the same. He knows your frame, but God experienced the same. What do I mean? Look at verse 14. Paul, Paul tells us, uh, look at this God who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul, Paul's saying Jesus may be alive now, which means at one point Jesus was dead. Jesus experienced the same questions you and I experience. He experienced the same sense of abandonment. He experienced the same suffering. We read his cries and his questions from the cross. He said this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabbatini. That means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, God knows our frame, but God has also experienced the same. He knows the pain of suffering. Jesus asked the same questions that you are asking maybe this morning or ask in your life. Why have you forsaken me? Do you hear my prayers? Friends, I don't know why God allows suffering into your life and mine. I do not know. But I do know a couple things that aren't true because God in Christ has experienced the same suffering. First, I know that it is not true for why God allows suffering is that God doesn't love us. I know that's not true. Look at Jesus. He is on the cross bearing our evil death and corruption that humanity has brought into this world through sin. Look at the cross. God is dying for you to bring reconciliation. He's loving you all the way to his own death. Now, Paul put it this way in Romans. He says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even uh, dare even die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
One thing we know is not true is that God doesn't love us. It's clear, even while we were sinners, Jesus will hang on a cross until death for you. Not in spite of his love, but because of his love for you. The second thing we know that is not true is that God doesn't know what you are going through in your suffering. We know that's not true. Jesus experienced the greatest suffering anyone has ever faced in this life. He experienced isolation, pain, shame, injustice, persecution. Uh, he, 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 most important of all, he, he was separated from the presence of God. Christianity is the only worldview that actually makes sense of suffering. It's the only worldview that makes sense of suffering. There is a God who suffers in our place so that whatever you are carrying this morning, whatever suffering you are going through, there is a God who knows exactly how you feel. Exactly how you feel. I love the way Tim Keller put it in his excellent book, Reason for God, which I used for this sermon. Keller writes this. Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. On the cross, he went beyond even the worst human suffering and experienced cosmic rejection and pain that exceeds ours as infinitely as his knowledge and power exceeds ours. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God forsaken. Jesus has experienced suffering in ways we haven't even yet known. He has cried our tears. He has asked our questions. And on the other side of the questions that Jesus asked, this is what he heard. Silence. Silence. Why have you forsaken me? Silence. No answer. God was silent. Jesus knows your suffering. He has experienced the same. I love the way Edward Shalitta put it in a poem that he wrote called Jesus of the Scars. He says this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Friends, he has wounds. He knows your pain. He's experienced the same. Like Thomas, we are invited to bring our doubts to this Jesus, to, to touch his hands and see the nail marks, to, to, to touch his side and see where he was pierced. And to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. Paul tells us that it is in this spot we find the comfort for our suffering. He is not a God far away from our pain, but a God infinitely closer than you can imagine to our pain. He is there 
hanging on a cross, crying out. But that leads us to our final point Paul makes in 2 Corinthians, the confidence for suffering. The confidence for suffering. Look at how Paul closes this section in chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. He says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul tells us this morning, you can have confidence even amidst the fact that we are wasting away. Uh, Even though we have questions this morning that God has not answered yet, we are being renewed day by day. Paul talks about this elsewhere in Romans 5. Paul had this crazy idea, this crazy idea that you and I, through Jesus and what he's accomplished, can rejoice in our sufferings. This is what he says in Romans. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul tells us there is a character that is being formed in you through your sufferings. Here's what I know. Suffering allows us to see above the transient reality that we find ourselves in. It allows us to see the temporary that we live in, the rat race around us. Suffering calls us up above that to see there must be something better, something eternal. Author David Brooks, uh, who recently became a Christian, uh, talks about this in one of his books. He says, there are really two main ways to approach your life and live from what he calls resume virtues or eulogy virtues. Uh, what, you, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? That's a question for you. And I will tell you this, even if they have to lie through their teeth, no one is ever going to give resume virtues at a funeral. No one ever says at a funeral, gosh, man, can I tell you about my brother, Tom? He was loaded. He had so much money. He didn't even know what to do with it. He worked so many hours. No one ever says that at a funeral. Uh, You don't walk through the gravesides of people who've gone before us. You You don't see on a gravestone Here lies Mary. She had really great teeth. What do you really want? What do you really want? We want what Paul tells us in Romans. Perseverance, character, hope. And we can have confidence in our suffering that Paul can produce that kind of inner renewal right here in the midst of a body that is wasting away. Paul tells us we can have confidence because the inner self is being renewed day by day. How do we suffer well? 
How, how do you and I suffer well? We can have hope on this side of the resurrection because God can use our suffering to tell a better story in and through our lives. Many of you may have heard the name uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. He was an author, wrote Lord of the Rings. You might have read the book or seen the movie, but one of the characters in that story is a character named Sam. He's Frodo's companion to go and destroy the ring, this ring of evil. And at one point in the story, uh, Sam believes Gandalf, the wise wizard, is dead. Uh, But he finds out later that there was a resurrection of hope. Gandalf is actually alive. And when they meet each other, this is what Sam says to him. Uh, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? I believe this is the great question we are all asking underneath our suffering. Behind all our doubts, behind all our questions, is everything sad going to come untrue? All the aches of life, all the fears we carry, all the tears we have wiped away, is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer from Paul and from Jesus this morning is yes, there is a resurrection of hope underway that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That from an eternal perspective, every sad thing will not only become untrue, but it will become an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. C.S. Lewis is an author, and he wrote a book called The Great Divorce, kind of showing us a glimpse from heaven of what this would look like in your life and mine. And he wrote this. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Though we celebrated Easter last week, we in the church calendar find ourselves in the season of Easter and resurrection still this Sunday. That the resurrection of Jesus gives us the perspective, like Lewis says, that we'll be able to look back from heaven and we will see every agony, every pain, every suffering, every broken system is turned into a glory. Every sad thing will become untrue. Every light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Every grave will become a garden. Where do you need to be reminded of that this morning? Right in the middle of your pain. Right in the middle of your sadness. In the middle of your doubts. In the middle of your fears. Where do you need to be reminded in your life, that the tomb is indeed empty, that there is a resurrection underway, that there is a new creation birthing forth right in the middle of this broken, dead, and dying one. And everyone who puts their confidence and trust in Jesus will have a chance to look back from a future place and see all the heartbreak, all the loneliness, 
all the chaos, all the suffering was a light momentary affliction that was preparing for us an eternal weight of glory for all comparisons that every sad thing had indeed become untrue. Horatio Spafford uh, was a very successful investor and he lost everything in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And also around that time, he lost his son to scarlet fever. And in the midst of the pain that the family was feeling and going through, he, he wanted the family to go away on a vacation. And so Spafford um, sent his, his girls, his four girls and his wife on ahead uh, to England. He was going to finish up some work and, and follow just behind them. And uh, during that trip that his wife and those four girls took, there was a terrible collision in the Atlantic Ocean and the ship sunk. Uh, more than 2,000 people lost their lives, including Spafford's four daughters. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy. Upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram home to him that simply read, saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England. And at one point in the voyage over across the Atlantic, um, the, the captain of the ship had heard of the tragedy that Spafford had gone through and, and just pulled him aside and shared with him right here it is where the ship sank with your daughters. Horatio thought about his daughters, the suffering, the questions, the doubts. And he wrote these words down that became a hymn. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, whatever my lot, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How, how does Spafford have the confidence to write that hymn right there on the Atlantic Ocean where his daughter's bodies lay below. How does he have the confidence to do that? In all the agony, in all the suffering, in all the pain, in all the questions, I think it's because Spafford knew heaven will work backwards. Heaven will work backwards amidst all the questions, all the doubts, all the agony. And he'll turn it to glory. Spafford tells us later in the hymn how he can have confidence. He says this. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so. Even so, it is well with my soul. Friends, one day, one day, heaven will work backwards to turn every agony in your life into a glory. Every sad thing will become untrue. Because God is renewing the wallpaper of this world. God is wiping away every tear 
and faith shall be sight. And that's good news. That's a reason to hope. Let's pray. Well, God, we are so thankful that you are a God not far away from our pain, our suffering, and our questions. But you are a God who has known them. You, you, you are a God who bears wounds. And so may your wounds speak to our wounds this morning that we are not alone, but that we are loved and known in all agony will one day be a glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and in the hope of his resurrection. And everyone said, amen, amen.